Hey everyone, this is Leadership Now with Dan Pontifrac. We are in conversation today with another Dan, w- way better Dan, a better DP. That's Daniel <laughs> Daniel H. Pink, who is the the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, The Power of Regret: How Looking Forward or How Looking Backward, sorry, moves us forward. Uh, his other books, as you hopefully know by now, if unless you're living under a rock, New York Times bestsellers of When and A Whole New Mind, and of course the number one New York Times bestsellers of Drive and To Sell Is Human. Dan, by the way, I reread To Sell Is Human when I went out on my own after you know 20 years in the corporate world. Uh, very helpful. We'll maybe talk about that later. Hey, thanks. Thanks. Uh, no problem. So in this book, uh, In the Power of Regret, you're drawing on research and psychology, neuroscience, economics, biology to basically challenge these widely held assumptions about our emotions and the behavior of regret. And as usual, your storytelling, your humor is uh, incredibly good. Um, But I'll tell you a weird part about me first, Dan, which um, I don't know if I've ever shared publicly. I always, if there's a coda, I read it first. And then I go back to the beginning of the book. So naturally, when you offered up a coda first, and I found effectively maybe this this weird part that actually cements the entire book which is uh you've got sort of in the research you've done we'll get into your surveys as well later but you you found that about 85 percent of us believe that we have free will and about 79 percent believe that things happen for a reason so there's this i guess what you call it is this dual fate this dual role of regret that we are the authors and actors of regret of regret and I found that fascinating because I've been doing some work on agency and free will. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, this is like a battle of Aristotle versus Sartre of like existentialism mm. and fatalism. Mm. So mm-hmm. I guess the real first question is, tell me a little bit more about this outstanding revelation as we start with the coda first, weirdly. Well, I mean, what I found is that in doing a piece of survey research is exactly what you say, that the, that the overwhelming numbers of people, overwhelming numbers of Americans, I don't know about overwhelming numbers of people, but overwhelming numbers of Americans believe both that they have free will and that everything happens for a reason, which I initially found pretty annoying because it seems yeah. contradictory. Um, but then I realized that there's something actually perhaps, perhaps profound about that, because I think that that... It, you know, you, you talk about our lives as a narrative, and this is a way that certain personality psychologists have analyzed our lives. So Dan McAdams, who's a personality psychologist at Northwestern University, says we fashion our identities, our sense of self through narrative. And he says there are two reigning kinds of narratives. One of them is a contamination narrative where things go from good to bad. The other is a redemption narrative where things go from bad to good and and psychological health is generally seeing your life as a redemption story of something that is on an upward path something that is getting better something that is going from less good to 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 more good but as exactly as you say as if we think about our lives in narrative terms it raises the question of you know okay if our life is a story are we the characters in that story or are we the people writing the story and the answer is yes <laughs> and and, and I think that teasing out where we have agency, to use your word again, where we have agency and where we don't, where it's the context and the situation and circumstance that's dictating things, and where our own efforts and agency can shape things is a profoundly important question about life. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So you, in the research of this book, if I'm getting this right, um, I'm wondering if I can be frank with my next question, like, do you need a hug? <laughs> because 
you you had to i mean here you are you've sampled you know uh close to 4500 americans with the american regret project and then went out and had a 16,000 plus uh, survey with over 105 countries and attendees from those countries in the World Regret Survey itself. So you're you're mining through regret after regret after regret. Like, did your kids and your wife hug you? Like, wh- how did you get through it's, all of that? You know what? It, it was actually, it's, it's going to sound weird other than, but it is, it was kind of heartening. I mean, it was, sort of uplifting because here's the thing when people are telling you what they I didn't expect this and we now have over 20,000 regrets I read through probably the first 15,000 of them Uh, when people tell you what they regret the most they're telling you what they value the most so each little mini tale is someone saying oh I was unkind and it's like oh that person values kindness that's interesting that's good Uh, uh, I cheated in something oh well this person wants to be a good person that's sort of uplifting um, this person um, regrets not uh, taking care of a spouse. Um, wow, this person cares about love. And so it wasn't, a, it really, in a weird way, it was not a, a downer. It was, if, if, if anything, it was kind of uplifting, as weird as that might sound. So what, what was the biggest surprise for you? I mean, f- for example, I love how you start the book and there's a kind of a, a running character called No Regrets. Uh, from, ah. from Jeff Bosley and the tattoo and the tattoo removal of his No Regrets tattoo to other folks getting No Regret tattoos to all the songs of No Regrets. Like, but I was curious, like, what did you glean, I suppose, as the aha moment or the, the moment in which you're like, all right, this is this is either it's counterfactual or whatever. Well, I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of different things. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I, be, I became I think a core point of the book is that regret is totally normal. Everybody has regrets. It's uh, and also that regrets can be useful. Um, so I think that's a cornerstone of the book. But I think when I started collecting regrets from, as you mentioned, a systematic uh, public opinion poll, a quantitative analysis of U.S. attitudes on regret, and then this broader qualitative piece of research, which was a giant collection tool of regrets around the world. Uh, in those, when I when I looked, especially that second one, when I looked at at those, um, I was surprised at how little difference there was among people. Mm. Um, you know that you would think that oh my god, regrets are so idiosyncratic and everybody's different. And, and I'm like, well, they're actually not. Um, there is incredible similarity. And then when I use the, again, not to get in the weeds here, but when I the the, the reason for doing a large, the reason. Well, the, the reason we did a public opinion poll at the scale that we did using a very, very large sample, 4,489 people, was so we could make sure that every demographic group was represented and overrepresented so we could then weight the sample to see demographic differences on regret. And there weren't that many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that was a surprise. So it's a weird, it's a weird kind of surprise. Like what surprised me was what wasn't there. Uh, I see. Well, indeed, you know, when I see surveys of 200 people, 400 people, that sample size doesn't allow for what is our societal breakdown, whether it is by education, by race, by ethnicity, right. geography, right? right? That's what I love. And you publish the data as well. So you can see yeah, yeah. the breakdown, which, you know, helps, you know, policy data wonks like me trying to connect the dots yeah. between culture, behavior and actual, you know, what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you asked about that too because I think it's really important to to show your work. Like, if you're going to make if you're going to make claims about something, hmm. people should say, "How do you know?" And so, you know, so I do, you know, try to show my work as much as possible. This is one reason why, in the book, for 20 years, 
I have in my, all of my books. Um, I have literally, I have like endnotes in the in the text. I don't like literally. If I make a claim, you'll be like a superscript four, and then you can go in the back and go directly to four. It's not even things like sometimes people have notes and it'll say page um, forty six, and then there'll be like a citation. You're like, okay, what? There's a lot on page forty six. Like, what is this citing to? So I try to be as explicit about that to show my work um, because, you know, um, I, I want, you know, I, I don't like to take claims at face value. I like to be generously skeptical when people make claims. And I always want to know, how do you know? And so I assume that other reader, I assume other readers, when I make claims, want to know, how do you know? <laughs> well, as a as a as a author looking up to you in the vortex of your well-rounded authorship skills. Uh, I think others can take heart to how you do that and why you do that. I think it's really important. And interestingly, you brought up, you know, all of your books because I, I wanted to do something hopefully a little bit fun and different with you. And that is connect a dot or ask you about if there is a connection between one book <laughs> and another. Uh-huh. So, okay. So the book I'm going to bring up is your, your, well, every book seems to be an instant classic, first of all, that you publish. But in 2009, um, when you did put out Drive, you know, the whole world um, glommed onto your point of mastery, autonomy and purpose. And so where I'm going with this is the concept of purpose. And I'm first of all, for people unaware of, first of all, Drive and the, the purpose pieces, you, you suggest that there's, you know, getting involved for that good cause, you know, arguing that people intrinsically ultimately want to do things that matter and that's going to help you with mm -hmm. your drive. So here's the mm -hmm. tie-in. Uh, it's a book mashup, Dan. That's what we're trying to do here. So between Drive and The Power of Regret, does one's lack of purpose sort of affect our uh, past regrets or even as you've pointed out in the book the future uh, taking of uh, stock of what a regret may be and I'm curious like more actor more author neither both what's your sense there I'm not sure um, I, I do think you know I didn't have I didn't have a lot of regrets that were about the lack of purpose per se but I don't think people talk about that in a day-to-day -day way. I think it's more like a, a, it's a descriptor of other kinds of behavior. And I do think that you saw the, I think you saw that in two, versions of that in two dimensions in some, of the, in some of the regrets. One is this very large category of what I call boldness regrets, which are if only I'd taken the chance. And I think that, you know, and these run the gamut. These are people who regret not asking people out on dates, people who regret not traveling, people who regret not speaking up, not starting a business. And I think there's a purpose element of that too. That is, it's not so much a changing the world kind of purpose, but it's a more of a sense of like, what's my purpose being here on this planet? Uh, that is, I think that people have these boldness regrets in part because they're mortal, mm -hmm. because they know at some level that they're not here forever, that they're going to die, and that we're on this planet for a vanishingly short amount of time. And people want to do something. You want to live. You want to, you know, do something, you know. And I think that that is a big animating purpose for people. Um, the same thing is true with some of these regrets on connections, which are, if only I'd reached out. And I, you know, I think that a big purpose in our lives is, is our connections and our love for other people. So I think that there is a, I think that there is a modest connection, but um, I'm not, I'm not, Sure, it wasn't certainly what I certainly did not set out to make an explicit connection. Right. 
Okay, well, you've brought up two of the four kind of core regrets, and, and we'll get into each of the four, if, if you may. Um, and I felt at the end of this section, after having gone through the four, A, uh, I could totally relate as a human being to all four, like, yep, I've been there, or there's an example of this for me. But I also felt like I needed to take a cold shower uh, because they were almost at times so visceral to sort of my mm. humanity. And so, oh. so for the four, uh, for people unaware or haven't read the book yet, and you should obviously read the book. So you've got foundation uh, regrets. So those kind of um, core or root, I'll call them perhaps, right? Like conscientious, prudence, kind of responsibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're about conscientious and prudence, conscientiousness and prudence. They're about, um, these are people who regret spending too much and saving too little, people who regret not working hard enough in school or university, people who regret bad health decisions, small things that accumulate to negative consequences later on. Mm -hmm. and, and that's part of that looking back and saying, what could I potentially do differently going forward, which I love you right. articulated in the book. So you've brought up boldness already. So regretting those chances that you don't take. And, and I guess one word could surmise this, and that's inaction. Is that fair? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, inaction is a very important word in the overall architecture of regret. That is, you, you know, deep down, there are really two kinds of regrets that we have. Uh, regrets about what we did and regrets about what we didn't do. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and what, what, what I found in, in my research and what has been found, you know, pretty routinely for 40 years is that people that inaction regrets tend to outnumber action regrets. What's more, in my own stuff, I found that there's a big age effect there, that early on in our lives, people have roughly equal numbers of action regrets and inaction regrets. But as they age, like even into the 30s and certainly 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the inaction regrets take over. By the time you're my age, you probably have, you know, twice as many inaction regrets as action regrets. Right. Uh, okay, the third of four is moral and that notion of um, almost taking the low road, if you will, of humanity. Yeah. But what I really loved is that you, you point out the fact that there's this slow burn that builds of regret in this moral regret. So tell us a bit about what you mean. It depends. It depends on the kind of, you know, the more regrets are really hit people. It's the smallest category of the four, but it really hits people deeply. And it's also, it's weird. It's the smallest category. In some ways, it's the most deeply felt. It's also, there's a lot of variation in this because we have a lot of people who regret, um, we have a lot of people who regret hurting other people and cheating other people. So, you know, I was unfaithful to my spouse or I um, bullied somebody when I was younger. And that's a pretty commonly held moral position. But there are other moral positions that are not widely held. There's, there's greater variation on them. So I have people who regret not serving in the U.S. military because they felt like they had a duty to do that. And not everybody feels that way. And so they said, oh, you know, I had a duty to serve my country. I didn't do it. So that's a more uh, I feel bad about that. I regret that. Uh, and they're describing a moral regret, but it's a morality that not everybody shares. Um, there are regrets about um, there are regrets about, you know, sanctity and purity and degradation and and duty that not everybody shares. Everybody d generally shares regrets about hurting somebody else or cheating somebody else. But there are there's some people, you know, have greater uh uh, more regrets about breaching other kinds of duties or respect or sanctity. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and then, of course, the fourth of four you've brought up already is the connection regrets, right? So those 
uh, fractured or perhaps unrealized relationships when yeah. we elect people. And you know, was this a was this the the biggest of the four you saw in terms of a of your results? And and then maybe explain a little bit for everyone more. Well, the answer to A is yes, uh, and uh, it was the biggest category. The answer to why is is intriguing. I'm not sure. I mean, I can make I can make a guess. Is is, is basically that you know if you, we can take a step back and say as we were talking about before, the reason I wasn't completely bummed out by reading these regrets is because these regrets are, are a reverse image of what makes life worth living. As I said, when people tell you what they regret the most, they they're telling you what they value the most. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when people say they have regrets about not reaching out, about relationships that you say are, you know, as you put it, are, are unrealized or unformed, incomplete, and they don't do anything about it, um, it really sticks with people. So, so why is that? Why is this the largest category? Um, and what is the reverse image of these connection regrets? And for me, what connection regrets are telling us is our need for love. Uh, that what we want out of life is love, and not only romantic love. And, and in fact, in some level, we're I think our society and just the way we talk about love is a little bit over-indexed on romantic love. We, we need to be thinking about love in an even broader sense, the love we have for everybody, for um, you know, not only our kids and our and our parents and our other relatives, but our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors, um, and that 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 and I think that love gives our lives wholeness, completeness, meaning, and back to that point about purpose. And when I was reviewing, uh, and I did some of the homework of reviewing some of those responses that came in through uh, mm -hmm. the surveys, I, I noticed a lot of I wish I I wish I. Mm. In the connection kind of uh, regrets i wish i interesting yeah and and i wonder if if that you know um that regret of i wish i could have or i wish i in terms of the connections uh plays out when we can you think about this from the workplace like i wish i connected more with my former colleagues and to build up you know some yeah or that's missing there were a lot more of those than i expected about about the um about the about the former colleagues uh, and that's what I was talking about, Dan, about some of this more expansive notion of love. There were a lot more of those than I than I expected. So there's one that really stuck with me is a, is a guy from Pennsylvania. It's like in the 60s or something like that. He said, I worked at the same place for, I'm paraphrasing, I worked at the same place for 30 years, and I'm not sure I would call anybody here a close friend. And that was his big regret. Yeah, and that's sad. Um, and, you know, and I think this tells us something else, too. So if, 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 if we can say that these regrets give us clues about what people value, that they operate as a photographic negative, a reverse image of what makes life worth living. That foundation regrets tell us that we crave stability. That boldness regrets tell us we, we, we crave growth and learning and psychological richness. That moral regrets say that we suggest that we desire goodness. That connection regrets suggest that we desire love. Okay, if those, if those are, you're just say, let's just stipulate that's more right than wrong. Um, if that's what people want, out of their lives, and why would they not want it out of their work lives? Right. I mean, they're spending half of their waking hours at work. So, and this is what they want out of life. And they're saying, "Oh no, no!" In this other, in like this half of my life, I don't give a shit about those things. I, I just can't. I find that hard to imagine. You know, and and I and I think what it tells us is that, you know, workplaces can use this reverse image of the good life to fashion a culture that makes sense. You want to have a culture that gives people a degree of stability. You want to have a culture that allows people to take sensible risks. You want to have a culture that does the right thing. You want to have a culture that has a sense of belonging. And I think I think 
there, when we think about it in those ways, we get a little bit closer to seeing a familial resemblance between this book and Drive. Well, and here's the thing, like like No Regrets is sort of this uh, secondary character or the tattoos, et cetera, that show up throughout the book or the songs, right? Also, I felt as though your kind of feel leading to thinking, thinking, act, turning to doing was also another minor character in the book. And so perhaps it's that feeling part in this conversation that we're in right now or this subconversation on the thread of connections, right, et cetera, and the regrets. Maybe we need to teach you know, our leaders and, and team members how to feel so that they get to that platonic love of connection. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it, it's interesting. I, I, I think that people feel out of their, um, I think that people know how to feel. I don't think that what they, they, they I don't think they need, they, they know what to do with uh, their feelings when those feelings are negative. Uh, I don't think they know how to respond. And so, and I think the, I think you identified a huge problem here. It, it, that that um, we tend to take two approaches. Certainly, with the negative emotion of regret, we say we either ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, or we wallow in it. And both of those are profoundly bad ideas. Those are that's not the way to go. We don't want to ignore our regrets. That's the, that's this no regrets philosophy. We don't we say oh always be positive, never look backward. You know, put your fingers in your ears and drown out any any sound any of the sounds of negative emotion. That's a bad idea. That is not a life well lived, but it doesn't mean we want to go so far in the other direction and wallow in our regrets and ruminate our regrets. What we want to do is we want to think about our regrets. We want to confront our regrets. We want to use our regrets. So these, when these negative feelings come in, we need to see them as signals, as data, as information, as clues, and think about them and take action based on them. Okay, two more quick threads and then uh, we'll let you go. You're very... Um... Uh, conscientious of, of giving and I love how you give but as you enter into third part and portion and section of the book when we're kind of getting into regrets remade there's a there's a couple of pieces here that I, I want to flag and let's talk with the first okay. one which is what I love flag being in a good way sorry is this undoing and at and at leasting okay and so essentially if undoing is your ability to kind of look back and say sorry do something about it and the at leastings, yeah. if you will are the silver linings um, here's yeah. a question for you. Do you think that regret can be uh, almost a systemic learning moment? Like, should we be teaching people how to regret such that they can oh. take the learning moments from them in these saying stories and silver linings? Again, I think it's similar to your to your previous questions. Like, I think that people feel regret. That people regret because that's part of their cognitive machinery. Uh, that it's inevitable that we feel regret. That everybody feels regret. I think what's tougher is we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to. Do we disclose it? Do we not disclose it? How do I make sense of it? How do I use it as a lesson? That I think we're leaving people totally adrift on. That people don't have a clue about how to do that kind of stuff. And I think that's where we have a big gap. Well, I think that's where you uh, expertly end the book with the like the three kind of main pieces to re remaking, if you will, or kind of redoing regret. So the self-disclosure you just alluded to, uh, self-compassion, and then uh, self-distancing. So mm -hmm. final question for you, should we be 
uh, not just teaching those three apt skills, ultimately of regret that you suggest, and whether that's normalizing, neutralizing, right, reliving, relieving, et cetera. But do you think we can, um, like CLOs and CHROs out there in the organization, should we be teaching uh, regret as a mentorship opportunity so that, you know, the 40, 50, 60 year olds can yeah. help younger individuals in the organization optimize with your regret optimization framework, you know, how to how to handle regret in essence. I think that's a great idea. And and I, I don't think it's that hard to do. I think it's a brilliant idea and I don't think it's particularly hard to do. Um, I think that one of the best things that leaders can do is talk about one of their own regrets. That destigmatizes it. That normalizes it. And regret should be normalized because it's normal. Everybody, you know, everybody has it. Everybody has these regrets. And when we harbor these regrets, we sometimes suffer from a kind of pluralistic ignorance that we think, well, I feel this way, but no one else does. When in fact, if you feel regret, but then you hear someone in a leadership role saying, here's my regret, that itself is helpful. But we have to take it all the way through. So it's not only a matter of disclosing and disgorging the regret, it's saying, you know, like seriously, if every leader in any or every organization this week said, hey, everybody, I want to tell you, here's one of my big regrets. Here's what I learned about it. And here's what I'm going to do about it. I think that would be I think that itself would be transformative. Well, it was more than a decade ago, Dan, where you and I sat down at a lunch in Washington uh, as part of some ATD lunch and learn session where I first got to meet you. I will never regret that day. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm enough, glad. That's a relief. Kind of I'm experiencing to... relief. Relief is relief is in some ways the opposite of regret. <laughs> no regrets uh, on that particular day. Uh, you've been kind enough to to blur one of my books, Open to Think. Um, but I just, you know, uh, a lot of us thank you for your work in this space of workforce, workplace, and self-development. Um, the power of regret, how looking backward moves us forward is right up there, if not the best of your seven, honestly. Where can people find more information about you, Mr. Daniel Pink? You can go to my website, which is danpink.com. Um, and um, you can find everything you need. Although I, th I feel like, Talking to you, I should get. I should go snag the URL, theotherdp.com. Well, you will always be my other Dan P, and I'm <laughs> better looking and brighter. So, uh, with that, Dan, thanks again for doing this, and uh, look forward to having a beer again one day, face to face. Oh yeah, one of these days. All right, I hope to see you in person one of these days. It's been too long. All right, Mr. Fake. Thanks, Dan. Have a good one.